Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Real Talk. It's Lucas here, and I hope that today's episode informs and inspires you to have your own real conversations. As always, today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Trivan, maker of trucks, trailers, and enclosure buildings tailored to your needs. Be sure to check them out at trivan.com. A huge thanks to them for sponsoring the show and making it possible. One other quick note before we get into today's episode is that if you are willing and able, if you could leave a review, preferably a five-star one, on any of the podcast networks or platforms that allow for it, such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts, that will be much appreciated as it helps get the word out there and lets people know what we're all about. So with that in mind, on to the episode. Welcome everybody to another edition of Real Talk. Today uh, it's it's uh, myself as the host, Lucas Holfleur, and uh, we have another interesting podcast to bring uh, for you. So our guest today is Mr. Al Sebring. Uh, some of you may recognize him, recognize that name. Um, he's a very fascinating man. Has a, a long career in journalism and uh, radio. He also spent time uh, working at ARPA. Uh, in Lighthouse News, as many of you might know him from his time there. And then he was also a counselor and mayor of North Cowichan. Cowichan. I got to get the pronunciation right. So, yeah, get that there right. we go. All <laughs> right. Perfect. So how are you doing, Al? Thanks for joining. I'm good. I'm good. And we should add, I'm, uh, today I'm an Albertan. I, uh, I moved to Alberta about a year ago to be closer to the 11 grandkids. So I'm no longer out in the West Coast. Very nice. Very nice. Well, Okay, so I think uh, as far as our chat goes today, uh, we want to just yeah talk about kind of your life and your career and the lessons learned. Uh, you've had a very interesting career and um, yeah, a lot of time in public life as a reformed Christian. So there's I think there's plenty to learn from you in that regard. But perhaps maybe we'll start at the beginning because uh, that's always a great place to start, I think. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about where you grew up and um, yeah, what kind of got you interested in journalism and, and politics at large? Uh, I was born in Brazil, and as, as I like to say, that's where the Mets come from. But my uh, my parents emigrated there after the war, uh, part of a Canadian Reformed church colony down there. And uh, they were there for about 15 years, and my elder siblings were quite a bit older than I was. My sister was 17, 18, getting to be Marian age, and my dad looked around, and everybody was getting to be everybody's cousin. And he went, that's it, we're out of here. And he had two brothers on the west coast of Canada, so we re-emigrated in 1963 to Vancouver Island. Dad had two brothers there, and uh, Dad started up another dairy farm and worked there until he retired in the in the early 70s. So uh, where I grew up, primarily I'd say the West Coast, because I was like five when we moved to, to the island. I don't remember much about Brazil. Um, and that was kind of my my growing up years were on a dairy farm out on Vancouver Island. As far as getting interested in, in journalism, um, I went to public high school. We didn't have a Christian high school on the island at that time. And uh, in junior high, I was involved in the drama club. You know, you know, you get involved in extracurriculars. And we were putting on some production. And there was a local uh, cable TV channel that would go out and do community stuff. And the cable TV channel was run out of the senior high school. And they actually had a credit course of what they called graphic communications, which was TV production. And they, the TV crew showed up at our drama production one night and they wanted a video thing and they were realized they were short a crew member. 
So they kind of put the call out to the, the kids in the junior high, anybody available to help. And I was not on stage doing anything in that production. I was backstage and the stuff that I had to do had been done. So I put my hand up. I went, yeah, sure. Put me on a TV camera. That'll be fun. And I was 14. I did that for 15 minutes. I knew this is what I wanted to do was some something to do with with the you know electronic mass communication. And so from there, I, I when I got to the public high school, I took the graphic communications courses, grade 11 and 12, in both in my grade 11 year, we were in a semester program. By the time I was in grade 12, I was um, working in the TV studio there because that TV studio also produced all the local content. And I was under uh, one of Pierre Trudeau's old LIP grants, local initiative program. It was a job creation thing for, for students. Loved it. I was having so much fun and spending so much time there that at one point the guidance counselor came to me and said, Al, the rest of your studies in the high school are suffering. Remember, I'm in grade 12. You got to drop this TV stuff so you can. I went, no, nah, it's the only place in here I'm learning anything. And I walked away. Never got my grade 12 at that point. A few years later, I end up in Edmonton. Um, and I ran into a guy named Bob Layton. If you're from the West, if you're from Alberta, you'll, you'll have heard the name. Bob was a very prominent broadcaster in Edmonton, and he ran a, a broadcast school. And I was looking to get into radio, and there was a job in Saskatchewan somewhere, and I needed an audition tape. In those days, you sent out cassette tapes. That was the, the audition process. So I knew the guy that ran the school for Bob, and I said, Arnie, I, I need to rent some studio time because i got to cut a tape. Oh, okay, fine. It was 50 bucks an hour or whatever it was. And I, so I rented the studio and I did the tape and Arnie wanted to listen to it. So he listened to it. Ah, you know, it's not bad, but you need our course. He's trying to sell me on this broadcast course. And I said, Arnie, A, I don't have the two years you want to take out of my life. And B, I don't have the 1500 bucks you want to take out of my pocket. So sorry, but no. And he's, you know, pushing, pushing. Finally, he looked at me, okay, you're such a smart aleck. He says, you, you, you think you know everything anyway. He said, review our course material for six weeks. And it was all written, and there were some, some audio lectures on cassettes. Review our course material for six weeks. Write the final. If you pass, give me 100 bucks, and we'll give you the diploma. If you flunk, give me the other $1,400 and stay for the other 18 months or whatever it was. I went, okay. I got the highest grade they ever handed out. And... It was a federally accredited course, so I got four high school credits. I got my grade twelve. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. So that was it. Was kind of fun. That was my introduction. And by the time I'd done all that, the the job in Saskatchewan was was uh, filled. So I wound up my my first radio job was in Creston, BC. We used to say it was a a two hundred and fifty watt radio station, a three hundred watt light bulb would put you off the air, but. It was in a little valley between a bunch of mountains, and we could have gone 50,000 watts, wouldn't have made any difference. So went from there and uh, did a lot of kicking around in, in various markets. We can, we can talk about that. As far as my interest in politics, I, I didn't really get interested till my probably early 20s. Um, and in, interestingly, uh, Grant Motley, who's the father of the current NDP leader here in Alberta, Rachel Motley. Grant was a friend of mine. I was working at the Alberta legislature as a reporter at that time. And I came very close to running, believe it or not, for the NDP in an election in, I think in 1980 or 81. Grant had me convinced. And I mean, it was, it's, it's kind of testimony to the old adage, 
I'm not sure if it was Shakespeare or, or, or Churchill or somebody came up with this. It said, show me a man in his 20s who's not a socialist, and I'll show you a man with no heart. Show me the same man in his 40s with three kids and a mortgage who's still a socialist, and I'll show you a man with no brains. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Very true. So I, I'm kind of living testimony to that because over the years, I've really kind of swung the other way. And to be fair, I mean, I think if Grant Motley could see what what the Alberta NDP had become, he'd be rolling over in his grave. It's a, it's a... I don't know. I mean, he died in a plane crash the day my youngest daughter was born. That was, I tell you, a day of, of pretty mixed emotions for me. I tore up any membership cards and I stayed away from any partisan political involvement for about 10 years after that. It just soured me on the whole process. But yeah, it is what it is. Well, so. Okay. So that's quite the story. I like that a lot. What, uh, before we get down the road a bit, like what, what drew you to radio? What was... What was so special special about it that you felt I need to be here? This is this is kind of my calling. You know, I did some television in front of the camera. Yep. And I did and I did radio, which is a different thing. When you do television and you walk into the grocery store to buy a jug of milk and you you got something wrong the night before. I was doing weather of all things. I, I was a weather guy on, on a TV station for a while. And you get it wrong and and people are in your face and you're recognizable, right? I mean, they, they see you. It's the same face they see on, on, on TV. Radio has a certain anonymity to it that I liked. Um, you weren't, I mean, yes, people recognize the voice a little bit, but it's a different feel. And and the other thing, just from a pure journalism perspective, we always used to, used to refer to television as a 10-ton pencil. I mean, radio... Um, story breaks, I make a phone call, I can have the thing on the air within 15, 20 minutes if it's urgent enough. Television, you got to have B-roll and you got to have video and, and you got to haul all the equipment out there and do all this and that. I mean, you don't have to, you can do it the other way. And if you do it the other way, it's basically radio with pictures. But good television requires a lot more work and and, and back, um, I want to say backstory, but you know, stuff that people aren't aware of, but that has to be done to make for good television. Radio is a lot simpler to produce and, yep. and a lot more immediate. So that, that was the thing. Very nice. Okay. So you're in Creston. Uh, you're at that radio station. Yeah. Um, are you, are you married yet at this point? Do you have a family? Like, and you bounced around a bit. Take us through that time in your life. Oh, no, I, I didn't get married till quite a bit later. Um, okay. I'll just run you through the, the list because it's long. Okay. Creston, Nelson, Yorkton, Saskatchewan, Westlock, Alberta, then Edmonton, then back to Westlock for a while, then back to Edmonton for a while, then Victoria, Calgary, Regina, Lethbridge, and then Sioux Center, Iowa. I, I ran the radio station for Dort College, the old KDCR, which just uh, sadly went off the air last year. Uh, I was there for a, a temporary appointment. The people who were in charge were off to get their doctors and masters and whatever. So they hired me to sort of fill in for a few years. And then when I came back to Canada, I spent some time outside the radio business and then uh, wound up back in my hometown on, on the West Coast in the Couch and Valley and worked at uh, my hometown radio station there. It was kind of funny. I've gone back there to do something else in retail. And the owner of the station literally ran into me on the street one day. We were still fixturing the store. And Al, what are you doing in town? I said, well, I'm opening up this, this store. Uh, I said, you know, I was thinking, maybe this was May of, of 2000. I said, you know, maybe maybe in September I'll come see you and we can have some fun with radio and get back into doing some morning stuff. September, can you start Monday? <laughs> it was kind oh. of one of those things. So I did wow. both. 
I did both for a while. And then I kind of backed out of that, mostly because I had done it for, at that point, about 30 years. And most of the time was spent doing mornings. And mornings is up at 3, 3.15 a.m. Because that 6 o'clock newscast doesn't just happen, right? I mean, it, all that stuff's got to be, especially in the early days when we were uh, ripping the teletype. I mean, now it's all computer-based. But back then, we had reams of paper to go through every morning. And you had to throw out the forecast for Newfoundland and, you know, the stuff that didn't matter. But it all rolled, so you had to work through it all. And uh, But after 30 years of getting up that early, I just went, no, I'm done. And then I did some podcasting with, with a few different organizations, but nobody really figured out how to monetize that yet. Then I got back into commercial radio, the same company that ran the, the hometown station. Um, they bought a whole bunch of other ones, and I was doing morning newscasts, but prepared usually late the night before. So I wasn't getting up super early. I was going to bed super late. But I was doing, uh, you're driving driving your truck around in Grand Prairie, Alberta, or in Cold Lake, or in a couple of markets in, in BC. And there's Al in the morning, he was talking about what the local town council did last night. People had no idea. I was sitting in my basement in my jammies in Maple Bay. Um, I mean, that's the nature of of radio today you have no idea where those voices are actually coming from so i did that for about four years and during that time i got into municipal politics and uh during that time i i started as a contractor with arpa doing the lighthouse news thing and then when i became mayor i didn't have time for any of that other stuff and i just focused exclusively on being mayor till last october when i said that's it we're done i'm 65 i'm retired so there you go okay there's the executive summary. All right. Man, a lot of, a lot of places to jump in there. Um, yeah. but yeah, you stuck around in the radio, in the radio sphere and that kind of, that kind of spoke to you. Do you ever get into any sort of print journalism at all? Or are you just kind of stuck with radio? Um, I did a little bit of television when I was working in Calgary as a CFCN. Mm-hmm. It was, I, I was doing some weekend stuff and they needed work. They needed help on the TV side. I did some print. I, I did a fair bit of commentary in print, um, just just columns. When I was in a new community, I'd go see the newspaper and they're always looking for half-decent writers. And I'm a pretty half-decent writer, so I would do some of the local columns in the weeklies. Uh, through a lot of those years, I was also... Um, I did a weekly or a monthly, I guess, column for Christian Renewal in the in the United Reformed side. Um, I quit that 2001. I didn't quit. I just I got divorced and I just looked at that situation and went, I don't have a lot of credibility right now until this blows over. So I backed away from it. And uh, I still occasionally contribute to to CR, but uh, only when John Van Dyke's desperate for something that he doesn't think anybody else wants to take on. I did a piece on COVID last year that he'd been looking and looking, and I, so I did a, I tried to do it, provide a little balance on that one. But uh, I, I don't do a lot of that anymore. That was, you know, the print thing was, it was as much as anything on when I was doing the radio, it was a case of trying to get some name recognition for the radio personality that I would, you know, I'd always tie the, the weekly newspaper column to, the fact that hey he's the the local morning radio guy so that people yeah. would start to make some connections smart yeah no i like that is uh is that kind of job like i'm just thinking for any of our younger listeners who, who are listening to your career and think oh it's kind of a neat job i hadn't really thought about that um it does seem like it requires a lot of moving around and whatnot was that challenging for for family life when you're in the radio well, business it was. it was um we quit moving well the kids were 
I guess the oldest was about 14 when when we did our final move to the coast. But um, I, I I don't recommend a career like I had, and not, not so much because of the moving, but because of the nature of of what journalism has become. Uh, it's such a it's such a corporate mess now. Um, there's very little sort of independent. Um, unbiased, objective journalism. Everybody's got spin. Everybody's got an agenda. Quite often, it's said in the in the corporate offices. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story from one of the radio stations I worked at. Which one doesn't really matter? But uh, I was doing morning news, and this was in the day when when radio news still mattered, and we had a fifteen minute package at eight o'clock in the morning. And uh, so it was lead off with four minutes of news, then a, a, a break for weather and this and that, and then two more minutes of news, just sort of the wrap up stuff, and then uh, some sports and whatever. But the whole package of 15 minutes today, it's, you know, three minutes at the top of the hour. Canada's burning the Russians have brought Detroit now more music. I mean, right, that, that's kind of the way they do it now. But back then, we took it a little more seriously. And I was putting together this eight o'clock package. I remember it was a Wednesday morning. And my phone rings in the newsroom. It's about three minutes to eight. I pick it up, and it's the manager of the local McDonald's restaurant. And he says, I hear that there's a story moved on the wires this morning about a woman in Chicago who ate a Big Mac and keeled over and died. Apparently, one person in three million is allergic to the secret sauce, and she was the one. And so I walk over to the teletype, and sure enough, it's just coming across. The guy goes, you run that story, we're pulling our advertising. I said, oh, thank you very much. And I hung up the phone. Normally, I probably would have ignored it. If I hadn't ignored it, I might have I might have used it as what we call the kicker, you know, the, the funny little thing at the end, right? The human interest yeah. story. Yeah. I led the second half of the newscast with it just because he enough. <laughs> that was uh, it. That was at 8.09. Yeah. By 8.15, the general manager had summoned me into the office. By 8.30, the rest of the newsroom joined me, and by 9 o'clock, we'd all quit. Oh, wow. Just on principle, to say, you know what, sorry, but you don't know. That's not how this works. How did that go down? Did they all um, get rehired or what? No, we, we were done. It was a Wednesday, and we were all done on Friday. We walked. Oh. What wow. was interesting was on that Friday... The GM popped his head in the door. I'm finishing my my day at my last newscast was at eleven or something. Yeah. And just go on to yours. Al, I got your your severance check here, but I'm not giving it to you until we go for lunch. I said, okay, that's fair. So I finished my day. I packed my stuff. I head out. We go to we go for lunch at the local hotel. And he says, you know, now he says. I understand where you're coming from and the editorial integrity and stuff like that. But if you're ever going to pull a stunt like this again, sleep on it for 24 hours. And if you ever need a reference, call me. And he was always good for that. So, I mean, you know, it was an interesting lesson. In, in But I guess what I'm saying is those kinds of sort of hard and fast principled stands against um, – editorial independence you don't see them anymore no and because it's just it's just the culture the the news media culture has become so uh 
don't know what the word I'm looking for here is, but but uh, it's it's dictated by by the suits more than than the journalists. I mean, we used to have a slogan in one of the radio stations I worked at. And it was up on the wall, and it said, "News is something that somebody somewhere is trying to hide. All the rest is advertising." I mean, you know, that's a that's a bit of a hard nosed attitude, but it's not a bad way to approach it. And today, that approach is just no longer there. It's just uh, it's been co opted by, by the corporate stuff and by the government funding. Uh, I just yeah. I, drives me a little nuts so yeah. sorry that was a little rant but <laughs> no no that's good it's it's nice to hear or it's not nice to hear but it's it's helpful to hear at least a perspective of someone who's been in the industry seen the change happen because yeah coming from my vantage point as, as a younger person i did a little bit of time in journalism myself before i got into business and whatnot i was kind of active with the post-millennial and getting them off the ground and and with those guys and now like they sold off to some some u.s firm or whatever in tennessee but Anyways, that's besides the point. Um, but yeah, a lot of journalism today is, I, I do agree, it's, it's all slanted. But I guess what I kind of thought when I was in that game a little bit is everybody has their slant. It's just a matter of which slant you bring to the table. I see your point that's about, true. yeah, I see your point about editorial, editorial integrity. And that is something we could definitely do a better job of today. But I wonder, is it was that just more, was the bias more well hidden? Uh, in past years, and now it's just like it's very much the culture war has, has has grown, and the rift is very much obvious. And now we just see it more for what it is. Or, or do we? Is it more just moral decay? People uh, have less integrity than they used to, sort of thing. Uh, in, in the first place, and my some of my even my old school fellow journalists don't like it when I say this, but there is no such thing as uh, objectivity in, in journalism, true objectivity. Everybody, I mean, worldviews are like belly buttons, okay? Everybody brings something to the table, and that's something, the way they view the world, colors the kind of questions they ask, colors yep. the way, they, the, the kind of language they use when they write a story. You know, are you, are you, are you pro-life or are you anti-abortion? What term do you use in a in a newscast so you know those kinds of things uh, of course color it but but equally there was i think more of a um an attempt uh, i sound like an old guy here but there does i think there was more of an attempt in those days to at least get both sides of a story rather than yep. just focus on and uh that that's that's different today i, I don't see that that even an, an attempt at balance, it's just not there. Do, do you think that's an ideological shift in the population? Like, I would say, if I, if I were to guess, I would say something along the lines of perhaps if we view everything as power and that the message is power and speech is power and whatnot, and people just think like, look, we just need to get our message out, out there. And it's not a matter of trying to be objective. It's a matter of, of winning and winning the war of words. Like, does that hold any worth? Yeah, there's some of that. There's there's several factors. Part of it, newsrooms today are so under-resourced that you know you're happy to get even one half of the story on the air because at least you got something on the air. That that's number one. Yeah. And and you know the other the other piece to this is there are certain things that in polite society we just don't even talk about anymore. I mean, um, you know, for 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 the occupants of probably ninety nine point nine percent of the country's newsrooms. Just as an example, the abortion matter, matter is settled. You know, opening that can of worms with any kind of discussion. And, and I went through the Morgenthaler years, and I got some stories there too. But um, 
you know, that asking whether abortion is appropriate is like asking whether it's appropriate to beat your wife in in most newsrooms today. So it doesn't even come up, right? Because that that's just the paradigm. And and yeah, that's that's part of it. it it's that's reality, whether we yeah. like it or not. Yeah, there's just a lot less debate too. I think that's yeah. that's a big part yeah. of it, right? People just aren't like you say, they're not interested in, in hearing the other side. So Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of yeah cultural factors at play there below the surface. But uh, okay, anyways, let's let's move on a little bit. So you're in radio, you're moving around, then you settle down on the west coast. There, um, I, I see here we got in our notes about uh, you were a nominee for the is this right the Missioner Award for investigative journalism. So you're yeah, not it's, just it's, uh, it's Canada's Pulitzer actually. Not many people know about it, but it's a biggie. Okay, very cool. So you're not just you know giving the weather and whatnot. You're actually doing some real investigative <laughs> journalism. So so what happened there? This this was in the Edmonton area, I'm guessing. Yeah, it was in Edmonton. Um, I, I went because I knew you were going to ask this. I went through some notes again. I'm going. I'm not overstating this. I don't think, but uh, the mayor of Edmonton at that time, uh, late seventies, early eighties. Um, got involved in some controversy over some land acquisitions in an area just outside the city that was going to be annexed to the city. And of course, you know, if if land gets annexed to a city, it goes up in value. And uh, so we we caught him out on that. And it was myself and a guy from CBC. We were co-nominated, a fellow named James Wark, because it turns out we were at the land titles office doing research, and we both realized we were after the same thing. So we went, uh, you know, we could compete, but let's just pool our resources, which our editors weren't happy, but it's what we did. And we came up with this story. And uh, at the end of the day, the incumbent mayor at that time lost by, I'm pretty sure it was the largest um, margin of any mayor in Edmonton history. His his opponent uh, beat him two to one in, in voting and Edmonton's oh. a big city. So it was a, it was a pretty substantial defeat for, for that individual. Okay. Very nice. So what, what goes into something like that? Like it's just months of research. Like it's, this is the eighties too. So you're, you're dusting off the books and you're looking at the records. You can't yeah, just do a quick not, search it's, online. Uh, yeah. It's, it, it's not like you can bring up Alberta registries on your, on your laptop and, and let her rip. You know, we, we actually had to dig into records. There were corporate records and there were uh, land titles records. And the one thing we never could get our hands on were, were bank records because part of the, part of the backstory there was a big development that that was happening in edmonton at that time um and if i say which one it is you'll know what it is but even now 40 years later there's liability issues so i'm not going there but it was a big development that to this day has never been zoned for what it became Hmm. but um we know and we could never prove that there were some financial transactions going on that were heading into one branch of a bank and then being withdrawn in another branch of the bank. This was in the early days where you could do that stuff. And so, I mean, it was a mess. It was a real mess. And yeah. So, but he's no longer the man. Interesting. Okay. Perhaps this was a certain shopping center, maybe, but uh, we'll leave it at that perhaps. I didn't say that. No, no. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Well, uh, yeah, you had a long career in radio and broadcasting. Uh, going back to kind of the worldview discussion we we're having. Um, so you're, you're doing all this as a Reformed Christian in a space where I can't imagine there were too many Reformed Christians, uh, maybe some Christians for sure. But tell me a bit, a bit about what that was like and how that evolved over the years, too, because I'm sure 
it got more and more challenging as the years went on. You know, I've never, and I, I may be criticized for this, but I've never worn my faith on my sleeve in the sense that, you know, it identifies me publicly. But at the same time, I've always done what I do in a way that's colored by the worldview I hold. And people do notice that. And, and some of that it comes back to what we were saying earlier about the choice of questions you ask or the choice of language you use when you're when you're writing a story, right? Yep. Uh, and and I mean, I had, you know, we talked about, I mentioned Morgenthaler. I actually had lunch with, with Morgenthaler at the same table many years ago before he went to jail. Um, it was some event in Edmonton, I don't know, and I ended up, it was a chamber of commerce or something, and he was the guest speaker. I don't know how I ended up at his table, but I did. So I engaged him, but I engaged him on, on stuff that he was not used to being engaged on you know like the life of the unborn child he, he didn't want to talk about that but so you you know you, you put those kinds of of um i don't want to say arguments but the way you present issues even in discussion with co-workers or in this case with him shows folks that yeah you you come at this from a from a different perspective and i remember one job i had and it was it was the one in victoria i had a boss there who was a, a quite a character a typical west coast leftover hippie dope smoking type but when i left he pulled me aside and he goes out there's something i don't get about the way you do the work and i said what and he says your motivation is different than anybody else so what what drives you I said, well, I, I have a different perspective on life than you. And, you know, we talked about that. And so, I mean, he had noticed that, that there was something off, if you look at it from a, from a, you know, worldly perspective. Same thing, actually, when I was mayor, just last year, we, um, when I decided to retire, the, the staff had a little retirement going away thing for me one afternoon. And, city manager and, and that that relationship is always interesting between a a, a mayor and a, what they call chief administrative officer which is a cao you work closely together and sometimes you can't help but becoming i don't know about friends but you can't really become friends because he's still your employee so you need to be careful with that but you know you develop a relationship and uh, at that farewell thing the cao got up to sort of introduce me to say my goodbyes and the very first, the very first thing that came out of his mouth when he was describing Al Sebring the mayor was a man of faith. And I, I kind of looked at him and go, "Where did you even get that?" Because, uh, like I said, I don't wear it on my sleeve, right? But you know, so um, yeah, there's there are just the way you approach and the way you view the world. I remember in the middle of COVID. Um, there was the Victoria Times columnist had this thing where they were helping out local charities. Everybody was locked down and, you know, the kids charities and all these things needed money for different for, for food programs because the school lunches were canceled. So they were doling, and it was a lot of money. They were doling out millions through their foundation. And so they asked me to write a piece for the Cajun Valley in terms of where this um, money would could be used and to ask people to donate. And I started it off with uh, the quote from Dickens, you know, the best of times, the worst of times. And then I right away juxtaposed that with Proverbs. It's better to give than to receive. 
And when you're the mayor, everything goes through staff. You don't, you know, I mean, you have original thoughts, but everything gets screened. So I, I'd written this op-ed and I sent it to the city manager who sent it to the comms people and they bounced it back. And city manager says, I, I already know what you're going to say, but you really should take out that reference to, to Proverbs. It doesn't belong there. I said, no, it's stamp. And the, the publisher of the Times columnist got back to me later and he went, it's one of the best pieces I've ever read. And thank you for leaving that Solomon thing in. People need that historical context. So right? I mean, it just Funny. is what it is. But but yeah. there are different different perspectives. So yeah. Yeah. No, definitely uh just just living in a Christian way. It doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to be preaching from your radio no. chair or whatnot, right? It's exactly. uh yeah, over a long career and impacting a lot of people. I'm sure they could see the quiet, quiet faith that you have. And it's, uh, I think for a lot of people, that's honestly the the preferred way or going to be the natural way. Like I, I relate to that a lot myself. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not out there trying to be actively converting people and, and perhaps maybe I should be in some regard, but you try to just live your life, especially, you know, for myself in like a business, like I'm more in the construction industry. So it's, uh, yeah, it can come up, but it's not something that often comes up, you know? So, uh, anywho, okay. So you were talking about Morgan Taller there, and obviously that was a big debate, uh, going on throughout kind of your time in, in radio and whatnot. Um, was this debate a lot more alive back then? Like, were you, did you ever do any sort of call in radio? Like where you had people call in and, and do debate style stuff on this? I did a little bit of, of talk radio in Regina, but th that never came up. But interestingly, and, and you know, you, you bring this up, I'm gonna I'm gonna segue to something here about media bias that, that sure. will um, I think illustrate some some stuff. When I was working in Regina and the Morgenthaler issue was was pretty front and center at that time, the courts were issuing different rulings. Or, so we would get the the local pro-choice group, whoever that was, and this is Regina, you know, the birthplace of the NDP. So you know you've got some pro-choice groups to talk to. And we would always try to reach out to um, the Saskatchewan pro-life contingent, which at that time was headed up by some roofer who did it out of his basement and he was working. And um, quite often it would take him, you know, four days, five days a week. 10 days to get back to us to return a phone call on well, radio that's ancient history i mean i'm sorry but we're just not interested anymore we need it now so the newsroom that i was working at and then i was sort of co-managing in regina was consistently being accused by the pro-lifers of being pro-abortion that was just the reality fast forward a couple of years i'm in lethbridge alberta and i mean lethbridge right the heart of the bible belt bunch of mormons the pro-choicers can hold their convention in the phone booth down the street. They don't exist. And Morgan Taller was still brewing at that time. So whenever a new ruling came out, we would call both sides. Guess who got back to us? The pro-life folks. And the pro-choice people would take a week to 10 days. And yeah. that newsroom got accused of being way too pro-life. Yeah. Sometimes the reality is the sociological reality of the community you're living in. So it, it's not always that the media is again you. Sometimes, at least back then, we tried to provide the balance. But um, if if you don't have the organizational capacity as a a, a pro life group, for example, to to do that, then don't advertise yourself because you're hurting your own credibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
No, that, that does make sense. And I think you do see that in different news organizations too, even today still, where if they're more like, I mean, the CBC is, is certainly biased, but I'm sure they have less uh, right-wing, less pro-life contacts to go to for a news story than they would on the other side of the fence. So it's just a bit of a numbers game too, right? So that, that's a good point. That makes sense. Nice to get the inside scoop on kind of, yeah, how the sausage is made in terms of getting commentary on, on a media story. Yeah. Um, any other stories you want to get uh, get to from your journalistic career? Otherwise, I'm going to move into some of the ARPA stuff if you want. My, my favorite um, story from my days in journalism, uh, it involves Charles and Diana, soon to be King Charles and his then wife, Diana Spencer. The year was 81, I don't know, early 80s. I'm in Edmonton. And for context, I have to I have to set this up. Fast forward a few years from there, I'm in Lethbridge, and I'm meeting the new district commander of the RCMP for Southern Alberta. He's in charge of everything south of Calgary between Medicine Hat and the Crow's Nest Pass. New guy. So we're having lunch, and I'm telling him this story that I'm about to tell you. So... Charles and Diana come to Edmonton for the uh, to officially open. I think it was the World University Games, might have been the Commonwealth Games. We had both in the early 80s in Edmonton. And I'm a reporter, and I had covered a fair bit of royals. I'd done the Queen and Anne and Margaret and whatever. So you, you get to know how things work in certain contexts. And in Alberta, when royalty comes to town, they always go to Fort Edmonton Park in Edmonton, which is kind of this old historic place. And the Alberta beef producers throw a big steak barbecue and everybody eats and it's wonderful. And the rule with royals is always you're not allowed to take pictures when they're eating because it wouldn't do to have the queen with a piece of spinach stuck in her teeth, right? <laughs> so everybody knows that. And the, the rules in this particular instance for this uh, Charles and Diana visit was no cameras. You could bring electronic equipment if you were um, a radio guy to get background sound. You're not going to interview the royals. That just doesn't happen. Uh, but basically, notepad, pen, and a little tape recorder if you got one. So that was it. So And, and you always dressed up for the royals. I always did three-piece suit, blue pinstripe, whatever. So we get to the media center, which is downtown Edmonton. They put us all on a bus and haul us out to Fort Edmonton Park. And we get there. And the reporters are kind of milling around. And then the RCMP security detail shows up on another bus, and it's about 20 plainclothes guys. And they get off the bus and they disappear. I don't know how they do it, but they just blend into the trees. They're gone, right? And then over time, here comes Charles and Diana on their bus, and they get off and they get escorted onto this little horse drawn carriage and they take a nice tour around the park. And, you know, it's wonderful when they get to where the big tent is set up for the barbecue, they get off and. And everybody eats and it's all good. And the event is ending. And I want to get back to where the bus is parked because there's a payphone. This is long before cell phones. And I got to file some stuff for, I think it was the 9 o'clock newscast that night. So I'm a little bit ahead of the pack to get out because it's radio. It's not like I'm the Edmonton Journal and I can write it tonight that shows up in the paper tomorrow. This is, That was the immediacy of radio I talked about earlier, right? So I want to get to the payphone. So as I'm leaving the group, I suddenly realized that somehow I've ended up on the wrong side of the yellow tape. It happens. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to steer back to my particular 
to get back out of bounds or inbounds, whatever. And there's this voice at my elbow, and it's Charles. Oh, nice evening. And then we're chatting, and we're walking toward the horse drawn carriage, and she's beside him, and we get there, and he climbs up, and I help her up into the carriage. The queen. (laughs) Oh, sorry, Diana. 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 Yeah, yeah. And at this point, I'm telling this to my buddy, the RCMP guy in, in Southern Alberta, and he interrupts me and he goes, let me guess. He says, you're the idiot that helped Diana up into the carriage. I go, yeah. He says, do you know how many guns were pointed at your head at that point? I go, remember I said I was wearing a blue three-piece pinstripe suit? Yeah. That's what the RCMP plain clothes guys were. And the only thing I was missing was the little earbud. They mistook me, or Charles mistook me for one of the RCMP details. No <laughs> so, way. Wow. Yeah. Great okay. story. That's crazy. <laughs> So there's actually, if you really drill down, there's pictures online, even today of that, of that uh, visit. And one of them has Diana climbing up into the carriage and it's all about Diana, right? Who cares? But there's a hand helping her up. That's my hand. (laughs) No way. What year is this? Uh, 80, I think 81. Somewhere there. Okay. I'll have to give that a Google after. That's hilarious. (laughs) All right. Uh, one one thing that came to mind, actually, when you were telling that story, too, I was just thinking, okay, career journalism in the West uh, of Canada. Um, can you talk a bit about uh, the impact of Ted Byfield? I just read a book a couple months back about uh, about his whole life by Jonathan Marin called Prairie Lion. And uh, that was very cool. Very insightful. I didn't know tons about him before, but obviously, I think he had a, a major impact on, uh, on journalism, especially Christians in journalism in Western Canada. So did you ever run into him? Do you have any stories or anything? I, to share? I ran into him a few times at the Edmonton, at the Edmonton press club. We were both members there. Yeah. Um, this was before, I think maybe he'd started Western report and started Alberta report yet. I was not aware of the, the impact he was having at that time. By the time he started the whole Tripoli Senate thing and and what became the Reform Party. I had I had left the province, so I, I wasn't really that engaged. I, I knew his son Link a little bit better than than I knew Ted, and I had a lot of respect for Link. That guy had amazing um, historical perspective for, again from a from a Christian perspective, but really a good a good resource and a, and a good guy. But you know, I look back on on Ted's influence. Um, we wouldn't have a reform party today if we if we hadn't had Ted Byfield, and we don't have a reform party today. But to be fair, we probably wouldn't have the Conservative Party as it's constituted today without Ted Byfield, because that was the merger of the old uh, progressive conservatives and 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 the reformers. Yep. And uh, you know, the, I mean, he had quite an influence on this young fellow named Stephen Harper back in the day. So uh, there's there's a lot to be said, I think, for for the kind of, of relentless um, advocacy work that, that Ted did in his in his sphere at that time. Uh, amazing stuff. I interviewed him once for, for Lighthouse News. That, oh, was, yeah. that, was, that was kind of fun. Very cool. Well, that's, that's an excellent transition. Let's just uh, get into that. So you start working uh, with ARPA as a contractor. Uh, was it just Lighthouse News and... and- was there anything else? How did that come about? When did that start? When did that end? There's a bunch of questions. Thinking, was, there you go. I was thinking of starting something on my own. Yeah. Um, I had a board. I had everything. It's going to be called News and Worldviews. And it's it's still in the back of my head as, as, a, as a dream. An aggregator of good Christian commentary and content. There's so much good stuff out there. 
that we tend to compartmentalize. Everybody's in their little silo. The Christian renewal readers don't read Reformed Perspective, and the RP readers don't read Chuck Colson, and you know Colson doesn't read World Magazine, and and World Magazine doesn't like Albert Moeller or whatever. I mean, but there's all these different, pretty solid worldview type enterprises that are out there and they're all operating in their own little um, spheres to their own sort of audience and wouldn't it be neat if we could have some kind of a, a daily delivery vehicle that says here's the best of sort of that kind of of Christian conservative comment doesn't necessarily have to be reformed. I mean, the first things, you know, there's, there's, there's good stuff out there to get people thinking and get people talking so they're kind of on the same page. So I had this idea that I was going to put that together. And and I I, I got as far as appointing a board and, and we had some, and then I, I needed some fundraising to get it going. I had a business plan that would have had itself sustaining within all five years, but um that's where it fell apart. Um, I don't know if I'm not a good fundraiser. I, I don't think that's the problem. I did the fundraising trip in December of I don't know what year it was. And I figured do it at least, you know, three or four weeks before Christmas. So it was early December because I know people are busy. And there was a certain segment of people in a certain geographic location I'm not going to get into. And I had the commitment from a couple of pastors there who said, yeah, you know what, no problem. We can raise a hundred grand just among the, the farmers and the guys from here will get her done. Just come on out. So so I'd set it up. Well, it was the earliest blizzard they'd ever had in Alberta. I made it, and my pastor friend made it, but all the farmers were snowed in. Nobody could make it. And 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 then I went back to the coast because I had one other potential there. And again, the weather was lousy. It was the next day, and I had one guy who gave me 100 bucks in the whole fundraising trip, and I ended up a month later, I gave it back on no, this is apparently not going to happen. So thank you very much. And that was it. But during that time, I crossed paths with Mark Panega and, and Andre Schutten. And I sort of, I bounced it off them, not so much that I wanted their money, but to say, you know, wouldn't it be neat if ARPA was part of this, you know, one of the, one of the silos that we pulled into, to this aggregator. And then sort of as the discussions evolved and it looked like this thing wasn't going to happen, they went, well, what about this? And this became Lighthouse News. And it was a weekly podcast. It was 15 minutes. And it was 15 minutes absolutely dead on. I'm, I'm a perfectionist when it comes to that stuff because part of the dream was to get this onto commercial radio where you have to, you know, time is king. And, uh, you know, there's certain Christian radio stations that might have picked it up if we kept going. Um, and we did, you know, I did, I think, a weekly a weekly show. We took a bit of a break in the summertime, but did a lot of interesting stuff there. I, I, I ran across just, just yesterday or the other, or two days ago, it popped up in my memories feed on Facebook. Uh, one of the best pieces, I think, that we did was... Uh, a sort of a debate interview between the three sort of leading socially conservative candidates for the conservative leadership back when Andrew Scheer won. So that would have been, I guess, 2017. And I had uh, um, Brad Trost, yeah, Brad Trost, Pierre Lemieux, and and uh, Scheer were on. And so, and it, like I said, it popped up in the memories feed, and I listened to it, and I went, 
that was actually pretty good stuff. <laughs> and it was also one of the more shared uh, things that we did on Lighthouse News. It was interesting. I was at the Conservative Leadership Convention in Toronto because my wife and I went to that. And I ran into a guy that a couple of years before we'd gone to church with on the West Coast. He was in the military station in Mesquimo. He's now stationed in Halifax. So we meet up again in Toronto. Ed, how you doing? I say, who are you supporting? So while I listened to this debate online between these three guys, and, and this is the one, I go, oh, you mean the debate with Trost and Lemieux and Shearers? Yeah. I said, that was me hosting it. He goes, really? I had no idea. He didn't know what I did, right? We didn't know each other that well, but he was just so impressed. Yes. It's funny how things loop around. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I was uh, a fun little tidbit. I was uh, on Shears' campaign. I was working in Ottawa at that time. So I was also at that convention. So. I do remember oh, that. Yeah. Though. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. cool. I Fun still times. have around the corner. If you were at the convention, you know, they had the, the signs for all the different regions, Gas Bay for sheer. I stole a Vancouver Island for sheer one. And it's still sitting in my basement here. Hey, there you go. That's sweet. Yeah. I got a little, uh, those pins that they had, like the drinking milk. I got a little, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. 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 I'll that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and on the morning of, the, the the stuff that was going around was vote make sure your number two pick if he's if he's not number one strategically yep. that's the smartest thing he did but anyway yep. that's a, a whole other issue yeah yeah those those are fun times but uh, okay cool so you did lighthouse news how long did the program run for exactly uh, you know what I'm honestly not real sure I think we started around 2011 or 12 it wrapped up in in 18 when I became mayor I said you know I don't have time for this anymore because the the, the the mayor's role, I had no idea how, how time consuming that could be. And yep. I mean, it is what you make it, but I took it rather seriously. So I was putting in 60 hours a week as mayor pre-COVID and I just went, uh, I'm sorry, Mark, but we're done. And so it had, you know, part of me says it had kind of run its course, although we could have kept it going. It was, it had a good support base. It had a good listener base, but, you know, they've moved on now to their weekly updates, which is video, which is kind of the flavor du jour on the internet and we go right right back to what i was saying earlier about the 10 ton pencil i prefer just the audio stuff where i can sit in my jammies and do it so yeah it is what it is but yeah it ended uh, late i think summer of 2018 we took the recess and the election was in september october and i said well if i get elected i'm not coming back so that's kind of where it yep. ended up okay yeah too bad but all right that uh, does transition nicely into our next section here so before you ran for mayor, uh, you were a councillor for, I think, three terms, maybe four, I could be wrong on that. Um, how did you get involved into municipal politics and, and what was kind of your entry point there? Uh, in, I tell people it's true. Part of it was just being able to give back to community. Um, anybody who gets into municipal politics in in a town of under 100,000 for the money is nuts. I mean, you, you don't get paid much. That's not what it's about. It's about sort of getting back into and, and giving back to the, the community. And part of it for me at that point it was 2008 when I when I first ran. And at that point, I'd been covering politics as a journalist for 30 odd years. And there was this arrogant little part of me that said, you know what, now I'm going to get involved and show people how it's done. I mean, <laughs> because I'd, I'd watched, uh, particularly at the local level, because you, you do a lot of local focus in local radio. I'd watched what worked and what didn't work. And 
in terms of governance and, and those kinds of things. And I went, you know what, I have something to contribute here. So I stepped up and I got elected in 08 largely on name recognition because, oh, there's that guy who was on the radio. There's that newspaper columnist. And, you know, everybody went, oh, it's, it's a personality and they, they voted for me. And then in 2011, um, second election, I I still won, but I had a lot fewer votes because once people figured out who I was and what I actually stood for, uh, they weren't quite as enthusiastic in their support. So uh, it was a lesson learned there, but that was that was okay. I mean, the the counselor job, and, and you know, one of the things you you put in the notes here is what was the job like as a counselor. And in my notes, I put it, it's a lot less interesting than being mayor. And I'm, and I'm, I'm not denigrating the jobs of counselors, but it's a, it's an interesting table to be at, particularly where I was, because it was quite a divided group at that time. Um, Vancouver Island is, is pretty polarized. I mean, you've got your, your Greens and NDP over here, and you've got your sort of conservative and BC Liberal coalition on the other side. And it's very hard to find middle ground that everybody can agree on, on on the major issues. So if you're in the minority on a council, it gets pretty disheartening because you keep getting outvoted and you don't feel like you're going to get anything accomplished that you want to get done. And, and um, so it's it's it can be a bit of a a discouraging experience if you're not ready for that. So mm-hmm. I guess okay. that's where I started. And, 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 and a lot of that depends on the makeup of your council and it depends on the leadership of, of your mayor in terms of how he um, allows issues to come forward and, and how they're voted on and how they proceed. So yep. there's, there's different ways of doing that, right? Was that a full-time job for you or a part-time as a counselor? No, it's, it, it's the, the, the counselor thing. And, you know, I said earlier, uh, being mayor is what you make it in terms of how many hours you want to put in. Same is true of council, yep. but um, it's definitely in a community that size. It was the thirty thousand was the population, fairly large geographic area, but uh, in a, in a town that size, it's not a full time job, and it's not paid as a full time job. And I think I was making fifteen hundred bucks a month when I started, which you know whatever. But uh, it's it's I got into it for the. The right reasons. I'm, you know, I'm quite satisfied with with that. I'm quite satisfied with what I did accomplish there. There were certain files that that uh, I sort of jumped on early in the piece. One of the things people don't realize is how slowly things move in government in terms yeah. of getting getting policy changed, and whether that's at the local government. And a lot of what you do municipally has to do with with senior governments. Right. In terms of trying to get them to change policy because that policy negatively impacts your municipality or your regional district or your county or whatever you're in. And, uh, you know, so we spent a lot of time working with um, provincial governments of various stripes. The liberals were in when I started and the NDP's in now. And a lot of that's about, you know, building relationships and, and doing that sort of stuff. So um, a lot right of good on. lessons. A lot of good lessons learned there about those relationships, which we can get into later. No, oh, yeah, that's that's a good point about relationships. I noticed you had a post on Facebook uh, talking about your, uh, I don't know, friendship is the right term, but your relationship with, with John Horgan and getting to know him a bit over the years. Um, yeah. 
and obviously he's he was the former uh, NDP premier. Uh, how do you go about building relationships with people who who share different political opinions? Because that's something that's uh, pretty rare nowadays. Well, you approach them as people. Mm-hmm. You approach them as people. All right. Um, Selena Robinson is. And she's going to hate it if she ever watches this, but whatever. She's the former municipal affairs minister. I got to know her when she was a municipal affairs critic when uh, Gordon Campbell was still the premier. And she was the critic, and then she became the minister of municipal affairs, the minister of housing, and then she moved to finance, and she's in advanced education now. She's done all kinds of different stuff. She's kind of a jack-of-all-trades cabinet minister. But Selena and I have had a a very good working relationship um, on on a number of files, and it's it's you know if I needed something like she to to this day she's in my cell phone, and if I really and I'm in Alberta now, so why would I? But if I need something, I can call somebody. Uh, the I don't know if you remember about a year ago, well a year and a half ago, we had a huge weather event in BC that flooded out a whole bunch of highways and. Half of the Fraser Valley and yep. the the Coquihalla was shut down for eight months. You know, bridges were washed out. It was just a disaster. And the morning after that weather event, I'm on the computer and I'm still an early riser. Just getting up at three thirty in the morning for radio. The body clock doesn't reset, sadly. So I'm <laughs> I'm looking at some of the pictures of the the devastation from the flood. And I picked up my phone and it was 6 a.m. And I sent Selena a text and I go, Madam Finance Minister, how are you doing this morning? Like, I just can't imagine being in that. But yesterday was a multi-billion dollar day. Right. Yep. And she responded. And those are, that to me is how you build relationships. You don't, you know, you don't get into policy differences right off the top because that's just, you, no, you, you approach each other as people. Yeah. And then, and that translates into some interesting policy discussions. I, I recall, I don't know, about six months before I retired as mayor, uh, we in BC, they have this thing called the speculation and vacancy tax, which is tacked onto your property taxes in some areas. The idea being that there's far too many people from Ontario or Alberta that have a vacation home in BC that sits empty for you know nine and a half months of the year and you only use it in the summertime so the government says if it's not occupied um at least eight months of the year we're going to tax you extra because what we want to do is encourage you to put this thing on the rental market okay it's one way of looking at it and the jurisdictions that were neighboring us in the Cowichan Valley, so Victoria at the south and Nanaimo in the north, both had a, a spec and vacancy tax imposed. And we did some analysis and we went, our prices are rising more quickly than theirs and our rental vacancy rate is lower than theirs. And my council said, you know what, we should write the Minister of Finance and tell her we want the spec tax here because it's obviously working in those other communities. I'm not convinced that that's why things were what they were. Uh, the Carson Valley to me was an undiscovered real estate gold mine and the prices were going to go up irrespective of whether we had the tax. But okay, council sets a directive, you know, council instructs the mayor to write the Minister of Finance to request this spec tax in the Carson Valley. So, okay, I write the letter, sign it. 
About four months go by, didn't hear anything back. Then one day my phone rings and it's the finance minister. And she goes, oh, I got this letter from, from you about the spec tax and we're, we're looking at it for the next budget. Um, are you still on board with this? And I said, Selena, come on, you know me. I said, I'm, I'm a conservative. I don't believe taxes solve anything. But my council says you should do this. And on something like this, I operate in the direction of council. So, yeah, we're still on board. <laughs> right. But I mean, those are the kind of policy. And, and she laughed because she goes, yeah, I was kind of surprised to get this letter from you. I said, well, you know, council sets the direction. That's how it works, whether you like it or not. So and I didn't like it, but I wrote the letter because it told me to. So that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. So that's that's a great example of relationship building right there. Okay, sweet. So yeah, that was from your time as mayor, obviously. Um, transitioning into from being a counselor to being a mayor. Um, sounds like you had a lot more fun being a mayor. Uh, what was that process like running for mayor? Did you face a lot more scrutiny? Um, you probably obviously had to run across the whole community. So that required a bit more of a campaign effort. Uh, maybe take the listeners through that a little bit. Well, actually, just to, to set it clear, we don't have a ward system in, in BC. So if you run council, you run across the entire community. But okay. uh, it was 2018. Uh, I had done three terms as counselor and I was actually going to retire. I was done then. I figured, you know what, I've, I've done my shtick. And one of the, um, one of the early influences in my in my elected political life municipally, I, I went to see a guy who I sort of replaced in a way, not that you replace anybody technically because it's not that kind of electoral system, but he was a pretty conservative guy on council and he'd been there for 20 some years. He was a lawyer and he was going to become the head of the Law Society of BC. It was, his term was coming up, so he didn't think he'd have time. So he, in a way, he decided not to run again. And I got one of the vacant slots that was left and that was one of his vacancies. So a couple of days after the election, I called him up. I said, Glenn, let's go for a bowl of soup. I, I need some advice. And we got talking. I said, you know, what's the number one piece of advice you would give me? He said, don't make the same mistake I did. He said, don't stick around too long. You get way too entrenched in your in your ideas. You know every file inside out. You have no desire to look at things with fresh eyes. Maybe there's a different perspective. Allow room for other people. Even if, even if you just take four years off and then come back, but give it a break. Like, don't, don't stick around too long. So 2018, I'm kind of going, yeah, you know, that's 10 years. It's probably enough. And I was seriously pondering retirement at that point. And then the incumbent mayor said, I'm not going to run again, which is fair enough. And then somebody stepped up who I really thought would be um, not good for the job. I thought she would be a problem. So a bunch of people said, you know, came to me and said, Al, we can't let this happen because the incumbent's not running again. And, and she was a, sort of on the conservative side of the spectrum, but... Uh, didn't, it really didn't understand governance, and I'll just leave it there. Sure. So I figured, okay, I'll take one for the team, and you know, run. So I, July first of twenty eighteen, July second, I made my declaration, and you know, I had an event, and you know, how you do that stuff. And I, I emailed the the incumbent mayor the night before, just to, as a courtesy, let him know. So John, I'm, I'm running for for mayor. Okay. The next day, I ran into him at an event with his wife, and I said, did you get my email? And she looked at me, and she goes, yeah, we got your email, Al. You know what? 
if he changes his mind and decides to run, I'm going to vote for you because he's got to retire. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fast forward now to September when it's the deadline for the declarations. He changed his mind and he stepped back in the race. If I had known he was going to run, I mean, he and I didn't agree on on everything, but he wasn't a bad mayor. He was right. I wouldn't even have run. But at this point, I've raised twenty thousand dollars for the campaign. I can't back out. Where you go, right now we're in the campaign mode for September and a half of October, and I spent most of my time not on him, but on this other person in the conservative sort of side because that vote was going to get split. There was eighty four hundred votes cast, and I won by ten votes. Um, no way! Oh, wow. <laughs> so wow. they called me Landslide Al for a, for a certain portion of the term. It was, uh, <laughs> it was interesting. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Okay, what uh, what do you think was? I mean, obviously you went through the period of COVID, uh, which is that's obviously a challenging time to to be a mayor, no doubt, and not something you would have anticipated coming in. Uh, what would you say during your four year four year term would be your biggest success and also your biggest failure? COVID. And and I guess that's an answer to both of your questions. I mean, yeah. People really have have no um and I'm not looking for sympathy, but people have no idea of, of what you're up against in in the local government context with something like that. Particularly at the start, we didn't know what we didn't know. And we knew that we didn't know what we didn't know, but we didn't know. We were getting images from Italy of, you know, the mortgage were being overrun. What do you do, right? The most difficult, that's the wrong word, the most unforgettable moment of my time as mayor was in, I'm thinking April of 2019. March 18th, 20th was when they declared the the pandemic. So it's a little bit after that. And staff, we're having our, our weekly senior staff meeting, and sometimes the mayor shows up, sometimes he's invited, sometimes he's not. I invited myself that time, I think. And the question that was being bandied about the table was, what do we do with our ice rinks? Because normally it's April, we shut them down, right? Um, Hockey season winding down. What do we do when when hockey's over and curling is done? And the debate was about. And they asked me, Mr. Mayor, what do you think? Should we should we keep the the chillers going because we may need these arenas for marks? Um, that yeah. <laughs> that's not wow. the kind of thing you think you're signing up for when you become when you run for mayor, right? At no. the end of the day. We, we kicked it around for a while. We said, well, we can get them back down to the required morgue-like temperature in about 70 hours. So shut down the chillers and we'll flash them up again if we have to. But, you know, the, and 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 I know and in retrospect, a lot, just, I'm sure people listening to this podcast, go, oh, the whole thing was a hoax and the government this and the government that. When you don't know what you don't know and you're in the middle of it. You gotta you gotta cut the electives a little slack because they're doing the best they can with what they know. Yep. And and um and I didn't see that and I don't see that today. I see so much vitriol and I see so much anger directed at at 
um, people we don't agree with just because we don't agree with them and they automatically become, you know, the antichrist, they become evil. Um, and, and, and I know, that, and I appreciate there was government overreach on, on a bunch of levels. I mean, I never thought I'd see the day, particularly in Alberta, where we're throwing pastors in jail. Yep. You know, and, and I understand the, I mean, I was weaned on the sphere of sovereignty piece, right? You got the state, you got the church, you got the family, and, and, and never the twain shall overlap. But we live in a society, for better or worse, and we can have the discussion about whether this is the way it should be, but we live in a society where the government is responsible for public health. So how does that play out? I mean, one of the one of the realities of COVID in the BC context that that you discover when you're kind of on the inside a little bit, because I, I did whatever I could with John Horgan, the premier, and, and some of the other people. We'd have weekly meetings with with senior cabinet ministers, and I, I kept bringing up the church piece and going, you know, how is it I can go to the pub and I can't go to church? I mean, it's not consistent. Fix it. Yeah. But, but one of the things that is not widely known in the general public is what started the, the church, um, the religious, and let me be more broad, the religious assembly restrictions in BC during COVID was a situation in Surrey where we have the largest uh, Sikh diaspora outside of, of India. And we've got all kinds of Gurdwaras and, and Sikh temples and stuff there. And these people, part of their culture and their religion is all about food. And it's wonderful. I don't know if you've ever attended their events, but man, they feed you. And they're just so, they're all about the hospitality. Yep. Well, they kept doing that during COVID. And they had some, some super spreader events within their community. Okay, now you're the premier. Do you say, all right, Sikhs, no more no more of your stuff, but you yeah. know, you Jews and you Muslims and you Christians can keep going? How do you how do you how do you navigate that when you're when you're Bobby Henry or you're or you're the premier? You go, no, you know what? This was a religion. Let's just in the interest of safety, shut down these religious gatherings until we until we figure it out. I'm not yeah. defending. I'm saying that's how some of these decisions are arrived at. So yep. uh, COVID was a no win for anybody in political leadership, mm -hmm. uh, except except Justin Trudeau, because he managed to exploit every division there was to his advantage. And, and I find that abhorrent. But, uh, you know, Jason Kenney lost his job. There were a whack ton of mayors in B.C., that we're not reelected in October. I might have been one of them if I had decided to rerun. I don't know. I mean, we'll never know because I voluntarily walked away. But uh, it was a very difficult time to be in local government. You know, another example, again, early days, Italian morgues filling up, all this stuff. We're on Vancouver Island. Geographically, it's it's the ideal place to say, you know what, we, just, we don't want COVID here. I organized, I spearheaded a, a group of I think about 45 mayors and a bunch of regional district chairs and whoever else we could get from local government, uh, including First Nations chiefs and stuff, all up and down the island, pretty much everybody on board saying, you know what, BC Ferries from now on is um, essential traffic only. We want our food delivered, we want our gas delivered, that's it. And everybody else, get out of here until we get this COVID thing sorted out. Maybe we can keep this off the island. Well, it didn't get anywhere. Uh, Horgan kind of looked at it and went, no, we're not going to do that, which, okay. In retrospect, it was probably the right decision because we, we now know that it probably wouldn't have made any difference. You know, if you're the mayor of Prince Rupert at that time, uh, Rupert 
if you know the geography, has one road in and out. They're a coastal community west of Prince George, and yep. there's only one road in and out. And they decided, Rupert, the city, their regional district, and all their pertinent First Nations, they said, we're going to close the highway. We're going to declare a state of local emergency, shut down the highway with the same kind of mentality. We're going to keep COVID out. So they declared a state of emergency. It took Mike Frenworth, the Attorney General, Solicitor General at the time, about 40 hours to override that local state of emergency. I said, no, that's not on because we don't want to patchwork all over BC. Yep. So again, you, you do the best you can with what you got in the position you're in. And as a municipal politician, you are a child of the province and they ultimately say yes or no. So, yeah. 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 There's only so much you can do. Eh? Yeah. It's, and I do think people do appreciate um, if they step back and think like in the early days, uh, there's so much you don't know and, and the decisions that had to be made at that time. I think what really great and a lot of people's service, of course, was how long it went on and, you know, the things we did know, but the government wouldn't admit to and, and the extended overreach, but yeah, you, you spoke to that. That's I, I, I know you see all this well. Um, okay, so that was your time as mayor. Um, anything else you want to get to before we get to the last chapter, which is uh, your consulting firm now? No, I, I you know, um, one of the things you 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 put in the notes here was was advice for people looking into looking to get into politics we talked about the journalism thing and and why i don't recommend it and i, and I should qualify that a little bit and say you know what there's a lot of good independent journalism out there that's that's starting up now first there are not first things uh first reading and some of these other uh sort of subscription only things and they're not unbiased but they're trying and and we're in the middle of a, a, a huge transition on what journalism looks like in in North America and I don't know where that's going and until we figure that out I'm I'm not sure that I'd recommend getting into it but you know what maybe get into the ground floor because it's not a bad idea I uh, just just go in with your eyes open I guess is it but as far as politics uh you know advice for people getting into that I, I guess two things um I, I did this before I ran in 2008. Get involved in your community um, as as a citizen, as a Christian citizen, but as a citizen. And again, you know, we don't wear our Christianity on our sleeve, but we don't apologize for it. Once people figure out that that your Christian worldview doesn't mean you've got a horn going out of the back of your head or that it disqualifies you because you hold all kinds of radical views, um, it makes the path a little easier for me. It was, uh, I got involved in my local minor hockey team, not as a, as a coach or anything, but I, I, you know, a lot of the front office stuff and I did the announcing at the games and the stats and just cause I, I like teenagers and it's a good hockey program. So I got involved in that. And there was a, an old war memorial outside of my community way up on a mountain that was built in right after the, well, originally after the first world war and then rebuilt after world war two that used to be maintained by the Legion. It was this beacon of, of white, it was a big pillar about 60 feet high. And uh, when I moved back to the coast in 2000, I, I happened, I stumbled upon this thing. I was on a hike one day and I'd forgotten it was there because you couldn't see it from the, the base of the mountain anymore because it was gray, all the, the paint had come off. So I get back down to the bottom, I called the Legion, I go, what's with the, the old Karen on Mount Prevost? How come it's, it's in such disrepair? Well, you know, we we have a bank account for that, and, and 
And, and we used to go up there every couple of summers with a case of beer and a bucket of whitewash and we'd clean it up. But our guys are too old. We just can't do it anymore. Would you like to take it on? <laughs> uh, you know, sure. Why not? Uh, she calls me about four days later and says, you know that bank account I was telling you about for maintenance? I said, yeah. She said, well, the two guys with signing authority are both dead. <laughs> so she, I don't know how we're going to get you the money. So I fundraised and, and we put it together. And to this day, the thing, because we didn't whitewash it, we actually used real paint and did a, a pretty bang up job. So it's now 24 years later and you can still see that thing pretty good. So I, I got known for for that kind of community involvement stuff. And so that makes the, the electoral path easier. And the second part, and, and this is something I learned from Joseph Benami, and I don't know if you know Joseph, he managed Brad Trost's campaign, I think, in, in the leadership, or yeah, I think it was Trost, a Jewish guy from Toronto, uh, very active in his, in his community, Orthodox Jew. And I heard him speak at an event one time, and he said, you know, the biggest mistake we Jews made is we, we ghettoized. We just hung out with ourselves said, don't do that. Get out into the community where God has placed you and get involved and don't be this, this insulated little cloister thing. Don't do that. Be the salt. It's good stuff. Yeah. No, that's good advice. Yeah, definitely. For anybody looking to get into uh, municipal politics, uh, there is Seabrink Consulting to help you along the way. How about that for a little transition? <laughs> So uh, tell me about that, because you're, I don't know, you're, you're semi-retired maybe, but you still have this yeah. consulting going on. So what is what, what's uh, that going to work involved? I don't give campaign advice. It's not a political thing. It's a governance piece. Yeah. Uh, you know, the reality is that in, in, I don't know about the rest of Canada, but I know here in Alberta and in B.C., every four years we have a municipal election and about 40 to 45% of the people at the table change either because oh. of retirement or electoral defeat. And that's councillors and mayors or Reeves or, you know, regional district chairs or whatever you have it. And so you get 40% of the electeds are newly elected. They've just come through a campaign where they've promised to change the world and they haven't got a clue how to do it. Plus, Half the stuff they promised to change is outside their jurisdiction. I mean, yeah. I can't tell you the number of times I see, uh, you know, somebody running for municipal council going, we need to fix these environmental regulations because it's taken way too long to get anything built around here. Well, that's nice. You want to do that? Get your butt elected to the provincial legislature because that's where they write the environmental reg regulations, which the municipality has to enforce, but we have no control over. Yeah. So that's part of what I do is explain spheres, explain that, you know, what you're a creature of the province is only so much you can accomplish in this, in this area. And uh, I've done a fair bit of work on codes of conduct. That's the flavor of the day these days, because we've had a lot of bad behavior at, at municipal tables in, in BC in particular, there was one jurisdiction where literally the elected officials were throwing furniture at each other in closed meetings. Oh yeah! Wow, <laughs> yeah, got that bad. And oh yeah, and you know, staff didn't staff didn't feel safe, and we hear that. You know, I don't feel safe. No, 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 no. And one staff member I know personally, uh, after a meeting, he went, "I'm not going out the front door. I'm going down the back door." Because and two counselors chased him down the stairs. They wanted to take him out in the parking lot. I mean, it was it was that intense. It was just the same municipality. So, at that point, the province stepped in because it wasn't just one. It was it was becoming endemic, and it's it's indicative of the 
of the divisions that that how how polarized we become in our in our political discourse. So the province said, you know what, from now on, every municipality, regional district in BC has to consider having a code of conduct. You don't have to have one. You can decide yeah. not to have, but if you don't, you have to issue a public statement. Why not? And if you're a small municipality, I recommend against the code because if you ever have a complaint filed and you need an investigation, it's a $40,000 catch. And if you're the village of Zabalos, you, you can't afford that, right? So, so sometimes it's okay not to have a code, but you have to consider it. So I've been yeah. doing some consulting on those things and I've I've helped to write four different codes now. And I mean, they're all to some degree cut and paste because they all contain the same fundamentals. But one, one municipality came to me and said, you know, one of the biggest credibility problems local politicians have, and I don't know if you run into it in Ontario, but we've seen it a fair bit out here, is when a, a mayor or a councillor is charged with a criminal code offence there's nothing that can be done to remove them from office until the thing clears the court because they're innocent until proven guilty. And that really gives the local politicians a bad name, even if the guy's innocent. I mean, come on, put build a process. So we, we built a process. And then I looked, the government had just rewritten the community charter, which is the Local Government Act in BC, to also address this to say, if you're charged under the Criminal Code or the Controlled Substances Act with an indictable offense, you are automatically suspended from your elected office with pay until the thing clears the court. So we wrote that into the code just to provide the transparency for folks. So there's all kinds of interesting spins that you get. Different municipalities are worried about different things and they want different things addressed in, in their code. So it's mostly about helping local governments. I, I'm also a member of the National Association of Parliamentarians. That's the, the Roberts Rules Process Geeks. Um, I love doing that. I and 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 I advise, I provide advice to nonprofits and you know, church boards, whatever. If you're if you're having trouble facilitating orderly meetings, um, I I help you with that. I I show you how to how to do that stuff and hopefully navigate it through in a way that um, while it doesn't make everybody happy will prevent people from getting too unhappy, I guess is the way to do it, because you try to provide an even-handed approach. I was at a meeting recently, and I won't say which organization, but you know, we just moved to Alberta, and we're starting to get involved in different things. And uh, Chair called the meeting in order, and I'm like, okay, we have the meeting agenda before us. I need a, um, a motion to approve the agenda. Somebody moves it, somebody seconds it. Okay, I need a motion to adopt the minutes to the last meeting. Somebody moves it, somebody okay, I need... At the end of the meeting, I walked up to her and I said, you realize that just because a motion is moved and seconded doesn't mean that you move on. You actually have to call a vote. She had no, no idea. She had no, no idea. And she's chairing this, right? So, I mean, fundamentals, folks, it, it ain't that hard, but some people don't know. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, a good, uh, good man to know for anybody who's looking to get into office or is in office and needs a little bit of help. Um, I think my final question... Um, just looking over your whole life and in the positions you've been in um, is on the question of leadership. So what do you think makes a good leader? Uh, especially when it comes to something like, like politics, how do you, how do you galvanize people? How do you inspire people and bring people together as a leader in a position like a mayor? See, and you asked me earlier about my, what I consider my, my failures as mayor. 
And maybe it's just that I'm insecure, but I, I'm not sure I, I'm the right guy to have to ask or answer that question because I'm not sure I provided the leadership that that certainly I was happy with. And again, it was it was COVID, so that's my excuse. But um, uh, to me, I guess what I always tried to do was was be fair and listen to all sides, even when I even when I disagree with them. And beyond that, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example again from my time as mayor. When I got elected in 2018 as mayor, every major issue that came to our table was decided on a 5-2 vote. And the mayor and one councillor were the two, and the, the other five were on the other end of the spectrum. And it was, you know, I mean, we had people there who were very uh, green in their ideology and, and NDP and whatever. And fair enough, they got elected. They're, they're there. They have a job to do. But over, <coughs> excuse me, over the the four years, by the end of year two, those votes had started to swing. It wasn't five two consistently. It it sometimes was four three, with the mayor and three councillors on one side and three other councillors on the other side. And and that was. And I'm not trying to take credit for it or anything like that, but that was a case of, of mentoring these counselors and saying, look, you have to understand that when you're elected to office, you are there to represent more than just the subset of people who put you in office. You are there to represent the community, more broadly speaking. Right? And, and that leads to some really interesting uh, mind-blowing paradigms for for the folks on the left, if I can if I can put it that way. We had a we had a case, and it it kind of illustrates um, the point I'm trying to make about about leadership and about governance. We had a situation where we had a piece of land in um, our municipality that had been zoned for. A modular home slash mobile home park, trailer park, call it what you want, for about twenty five years. It's it was kind of it was next to the highway, but it was not close to any uh, major urban installations. We had four communities within our municipality. It was that's how it was set up. It wasn't close to anything. It wasn't close for transit. It wasn't walkable or any of that stuff. I've always, and again, this goes back to the how do you apply your Christian principles and politics? I've always believed in the in the the sort of supremacy of of property rights. If I have a piece of property, there's certain things I should be able to do with it to advance it and, and make it better. That kind of runs smack dab into a lot of the best practices in urban planning now, which says if your property isn't located within uh, the municipal service area, we don't allow a bunch of work on it because it costs us too much money to run the water and sewer and infrastructure out there, right? So smart growth is what it's called and <clears throat> my municipality is very much about smart growth <clears throat> so anyway this piece of property had been zoned for this for 20 odd years and it had just been sold and the new owner said you know what i want to get this done i'm going to build a mobile home park in our context in north Cowichan, one of the things that we did was that every monday council would get an email from staff going here's the issues you should be aware of even though most of these issues will never come to the council table. I mean, we have policy, staff, you know, carries out the policy and we never see it. But if there's a major development coming, even if it's within policy, 
council should know so that if a citizen comes up and say, hey, I see these bulldozers on this piece of property, what's going in there? We know and we can tell them. So that was the premise of this, this Monday newsletter. So this Monday newsletter comes out, and yeah, this piece of property is going to be developed for a, a mobile home park. And one of the councillors got rather agitated about this and said, no, it's outside the urban containment boundary. It, it counters every principle of smart growth. It's urban sprawl. It's, it's all the things we don't want. How can we stop this? Well, you can't. He has it's zoned. He's, you know, he has development rights to do it. Well, he dug around and figured out that, yes, council could downzone the property to disallow that development. Unilaterally, we can do that if, as long as the developer has not spent substantial money in furtherance of his existing zoning. So, um, you know, he hadn't poured the pads for the, the mobile homes or whatever, which he sure. hadn't done. Yeah. So this council puts, puts forward a motion to downzone. Now we get to the council debate, and I was expecting the usual 5-2 vote. You know, the, the, the five greenies, I'm not being pejorative, but the folks on that side against myself, one of the council. One of the people on the other side of the spectrum cracks her mic and says, Mr. Mayor, you know, I'm really conflicted on this. I completely understand where this motion is coming from. I'm against urban sprawl. This is bad urban planning. This is, this is, this is everything we don't want. But we're in a housing crisis. I'm the only counselor at this table is renting. And I don't know where I'm going to move in six months because I think my landlord wants to sell my place. We are in a housing crisis. We need these 120 units. And she she voted against the downside and took one of the one of the other counselors with her. All of a sudden we had a four three vote the other way. Hmm. And a lot of that was and not that I take credit, but I always tried as a journalist too, when I had kids coming up out of J school that we were we were training to try to to talk about reality, right? This yep. is how the world works. It's not all about you know um fairy dust and, and unicorn farts. I mean, there are actual economic realities that have to be considered and addressed and and worked with. And for the rest of the term, and not on all the issues, but on some of the big issues, it was four three votes. So was that leadership? I don't know. But I mean that uh, I, I I took the the time that I had had at the governance table and the time and the experience I'd had in, in journalism and I try to to work with with the the younger folks to mentor and say, you know, you, you've got to take the, the bigger community perspective on these issues. You can't just govern for your subset. So I guess that's, that's leadership. Yeah. And, and sometimes, and sometimes that goes the other way. Okay. Sometimes I didn't vote the way I was expected to, because I took the broader and I went, no, you know what, this, this aligns with my philosophy, but it would be a stupid thing to do. So we're not doing it. Yeah. 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 Being open-minded, being fair taking the time to, to talk to others on the other side and, and building those relationships like you talked about. So that's all very valuable. Well, uh, I think we're reaching the end here, Al. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us and to tell us all about your career and the lessons learned. Um, much appreciated and uh, yeah, all the best. Thanks, Lucas. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback, and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we've got a lot of great content there. Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. 
This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfluer, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamiga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.